Well, Billy asked me the other week uh, to, well, several weeks back he asked me to do last week and I thought we'd do that friendship from Joe, which we did. And then he said, could I do this one while he's on holiday? And I thought, where shall I turn to? And where we're turning to is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And I'm going to read down uh, to the end of verse 8. Um, Don't worry, it is not the beginning of an extremely long series, but I do hope only to look at the first four words of of the Bible tonight and where they take us. But we're going to read the first eight verses of Genesis 1, which you could probably all tell me by heart, more or less, if you didn't have your Bible in front of you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. A little while back, months ago now, I uh, put something I think on the back page of the weekly bulletin uh, and said about the smart answer that Augustine gave to the man who said, what was God doing before he created the world? And I said, Augustine's smart answer, which was he was making a hell for people who ask questions like that, was smart but wrong, because the Bible does say quite a lot about what God was doing before he created the world. Not what he was doing, which has no relationship to the world, most of it, but beforehand, and I, I want to take us back because when we begin to think of God before he made anything, it helps us, I think, to enrich our, our view of our God. Uh, the scripture teaches these things, and we're not hopefully going beyond what the scripture teaches, to show us the greatness of God. And in different ways, that's really the topic tonight, the greatness of God. The verse which begins the Bible in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, of course, means that uh, this is not the beginning of God. It's the beginning of creation. But the creator was there already. There are people, many people who would tell you uh, about the theory of origins and they usually now speak of the Big Bang. But of course, the Big Bang is by no means a theory of origins. Uh, Terry Pratchett, who is an atheist, Uh, put it in one of his books where he said that the state of knowledge at the moment seems to be uh, first there was nothing which exploded. And indeed that's fair enough. But of course that means it's not a theory of origins. Nothing can't explode. It shows that that man cannot begin to think of how something came out of nothing. John Paul Sartre, the existentialist uh, philosopher, said this is uh, the, the, the fundamental philosophical puzzle. How does existence exist? The cosmological proof, as it's called, of God 
because there is a creation, there must be a creator, logically holds. So what was God doing before the beginning? Well, I want to speak of five things and then we're coming on to some implications. And the first thing is that God was living. You remember that in Exodus when Moses is at the burning bush and he speaks with God in Exodus 3 and God commissions him to bring Israel out of Egypt and perfectly rightly Moses says in verse 13 indeed when I come to the children of Israel and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they say to me what is his name what should I say to them Israel were in Egypt they had many gods they had Horus and uh, Osiris and Iris and uh, Isis and and all sorts of other gods. And, uh, and then they would, if you think of Canaan where Israel was coming into. Where they had Baal. And, and, and the gods had names. And Moses is simply saying what, who is you? Who are you? And the Lord describes himself. He gives himself his name. He says I am who I am. This you shall say to the children of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Moreover the Lord said to Moses. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel. The Lord God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. This name I am, which has been brought into English somewhat inaccurately as Jehovah, better Yahweh. And But it, say, it simply says all these other gods which don't exist have names, but my name is I am. They don't, they're not, I am. And I am because I always was. God is eternal, and Moses it is, isn't it? Who we are not surprised in, that it's Moses, surely in Psalm 90, therefore, and verse 2, where he celebrates God, and he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's worship, isn't it? And that is is what it, surely the, the thought of God as eternal is to lead us to, to lead us to humility. God is eternal. God is, as we say, transcendent. He is, he is not the creation. He's not part of the creation, though he's fully in the creation in activity, but he made the universe. And he is outside it and infinitely, in that sense, in terms of being, bigger than it. Our God is a great big God. The children sing, don't they? Do you, do you children sing? Yeah, they do. Good. <laughs> it's a long, been around a long time, that one. Uh, he is, isn't he, though? And, 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 but the problem is, we, because we are finite, though we know that, it, the reality doesn't impinge on our thoughts the way it should. We have always to struggle, don't we, with the greatness of God. Not just... His eternity, we have to struggle with his complete holiness, his complete power. All the perfections of God, we, we tend, we have no reference point uh, to make them, uh, to have, make a comparison with them. And so we tend to diminish God down in our thinking. It's because we're sinful. Uh, and the problem is, isn't it, that you take, if you don't st- fight and strive as the scripture keeps reminding us not just in Genesis 1 1 isn't it about the eternity of God and that he is the creator uh, and that he made everything that is if we if we don't 
strive to, to, to keep reminding ourselves and grasping them and, and meditating on that great truth, we end up thinking of God, who is our loving Heavenly Father, as someone who's just a bit like an earthly father, but a bit bigger. And you go further down that road and you end up with God, uh, as I've said before, I'm sure, a bit like your mobile phone, who you switch him on when you want to and off when you don't, and put him in your pocket. And, and we must strive against that. We are to approach God, the Bible says, I won't quote verses, with fear and with humility and in adoration. It's interesting, isn't it, in the last book of the Bible, where the curtain is drawn back, that's what Revelation means, and it's drawn back in Revelation 4 on the worship of heaven, and there is God seen in, in all his glory on that great throne, uh, in the vision that John saw, and in verse 8, uh, the four living creatures do not rest day or night, singing holy, holy, holy. So they're singing of the holiness of God. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, the eternal God. And then the worship continues, and in verse 11, you are worthy, O God, to uh, the, the, the elders cast their crowns before God and saying, you are, say, you are worthy, O Lord. To receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So in the, in the worship of heaven there is the constant consciousness that God is eternal and God is the creator. And so it has to be with us. And that means, doesn't it, there's many implications of that. But it means because God is the I am. The I am who I am. I've always been who I am. He is the unchanging God. And that means, other things we'll come to, but it means that he is the reliable God. We talk of him as a, a faithful God, and, and that's the word the scripture often uses. But he's faithful to us and to what he's said he would do, because we can rely upon him. And therefore, trust him that he will accomplish all he has purposed to do. Let's move on, but secondly... God before the creation was triune. He was Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, as we have just sung. And this verse, in fact, hints at this. In the beginning, God, the word God is a, a plural term. And plural in Hebrew means more than two because they have singular and dual and plural terms, unlike in English. And then the word immediately following, created, is singular. And so you get what you might call a grammatical puzzle right at the beginning of the Bible. And if you go on to verse 26, you find God speaking within himself, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And right from the beginning there is this truth hinted at, but, but taught that it's, it's in its uh, sort of seed form, that God is not a God we are to think of who is completely uh, so one that there's nothing within him apart from oneness, like Allah would be taught, or like the Jehovah's Witnesses, God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with all the richness of interpersonal, the word we have to use really, relationships that that, that brings to us. And therefore a God who is able, when he creates, to create others who have relationships with each other and with him, not just people, creatures, have relationships with each other 
uh, dogs have relationships with dogs and dogs with humans and humans with dogs and, and humans with God. This world is a world of relationship. It's an interwoven web. And it comes out of the being of God. And, and God is glorified in making, I suppose you, it's hard to imagine, but in theory you could imagine uh, God somehow making a, a universe as big as ours and creating one creature for each planet. You know, and you never see anyone else. And he could have done that, and he could have made us perfectly satisfied with that. But there's a richness lost, which we can understand, because it's not like that, isn't that? The richness of relationship. And then thirdly, to say God was ever blessed. There's First Timothy 6 and verse 15, and Paul is adoring God at the end of his letter to Timothy there. And what does he say of him? He, he speaks of him in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15. And he says, which God will manifest, Christ appearing in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. So again, it's linked, isn't it? To the, atti- to the, to the thought that God is immortal and eternal. But he is the ever-blessed God. And our minds can't stretch to how it is that God who is ever blessed can yet create a world into which sin comes and and, and he has to deal with it. But I think what the word means is this, that he is the God who, who needs nothing outside himself to make him perfectly happy, content, struggle again, don't we, for words, complete in himself. This is what the theologians call aseity, to oneself. And the point is, surely, that it reminds us that God does not need us. He doesn't need any one of us, and he doesn't need all of us. Uh, He doesn't need in the sense of saying, I am incomplete without you. He is complete without us, and yet he wants us to be with him. It's, It's a mystery, isn't it? But we must not, to, to see the, the opposite of, of what the Bible is teaching here, would be a God who is sitting there who is lonely and saying, I've got to create someone, I need something, I need something outside of myself. He doesn't need. He chose. He chose to create for his own glory. And that brings us to the fourth point. I say there's five and then, then we'll come to some more application. God was, what was God doing? What was God doing before he created the world? Well, there's two answers to that. One is, he may well have been doing vastly more than anything the Bible reveals, which we cannot possibly even imagine. I don't mean making other universes, I just mean anything. Things we have no concept of. I don't know that, you don't know that. But we mustn't limit what God might do. But secondly, we know what he was doing. He was planning. He was eternally planning. His decrees are eternal. The Lord Jesus spoke, doesn't he, of, of God, and he's the one who, you know, not a sparrow falls without his knowledge. And, uh, and we know that there are smaller things than sparrows, and, and you go down to subatomic particles, which I don't know anyone understands them completely, and certainly I don't. And, and, uh, but you have to say that everything, 
that is here, none of it's outside God's control. He's planned how everything works right from the beginning. Now that sort of starts boggling the mind as well, doesn't it? Because you get to the point of saying if if everything, God has decreed everything, then where is the free agency of human beings? And I'm not going to try and answer that question. But the point is that, that God knows the end from the beginning. And that is a great source of comfort, isn't it? All of us have had to do, some of us have to do many of them each day, actually, things, don't we? Tasks. Well, we, we plan. We think, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do it that way. And we do it as best we can. And sometimes it works. And sometimes there's a spanner put in the works and it doesn't completely work. But sometimes we think, if only I'd thought a bit more, I'd have got it, done it better. But you do something and you think, oh, I should have done it that way. And we're so used to this that we just get used to it. But, but God never has to do that, does he? He never has to say, I should have done it that way. He never has to say, this isn't quite working out as I wanted. I'll adjust plan A or even bring in plan B. And this, you see, this is not just theoretical head knowledge, is it, when we think of this. This is, this is our God. And here we are, and we are here as his people, and we have a life which began and a life which will end on this world. And we go to glory by his grace. And it's all because it's planned in advance. He is the sovereign God over what he has. But not sovereign in the sense of saying, well, I can do everything I want. But the God who actually does do everything he wants. And again, that, that, that should calm our hearts and our souls, shouldn't it? Wherever you are, wherever we are, whatever was going on in our lives, it's all been planned eternally by God. He plans and he executes. And so that leads to two things, I think. One is Romans 8 and verse 28, that very familiar and comforting verse. Uh, which says, uh, and we'll come on to the concept of election in a minute, but it says uh, that uh, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We can individualise that verse, but uh, it's, it, it has a corporate aspect. God is saying, I'm doing everything in this world together for all the good of all my people together. Uh, and that's, that's a richer thought than just God is working everything out for me. And it leads on, and, and, and before we move on though, there's the second result of the fact that God plans and then does what he planned is this. Purpose is possible. God has purposes and he brings them forth. It is not a meaningless question to ask, what's it all about? What is my life about? Why am I here? Is there any point in me being here? And, and I think any philosophy that, that goes away from and starts not with the eternal God ends up really saying we can't understand the point of anything. Perhaps the whole question of is there a point is a pointless question, say the philosophers. And we, by God's grace, even the one, the, the smallest of us, the weakest of us, uh, the least intellectual of us, whatever, have been delivered from that. 
and we can say, why am I here? God has put me here to live for him. And not just now, but eternally. There is purpose to my life. The chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That, that's what I'm here for. And he's always planned that. And that leads to the fifth point. God in eternity was choosing a people from uncreated man. From those he knew he would create, but before we were created. Ephesians 1 and verse 4, those very familiar, glorious words, isn't it? Which speaks of the blessings that we have in Christ. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. And in Revelation 13 and verse 8, again the curtain drawn back and the, uh, of what is going on and what God is doing of, in the future. And those who are going to worship the beast. And it's those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If you take from the foundation of the world with the book of life or with the Lamb slain, it doesn't actually matter. In God's plan, the Lamb was slain from before the creation of the world. And there was a book written of those who would be saved by the Lamb being slain in due time. And if you're a Christian, then, well, that causes you, surely, doesn't it, to just to glorify God. Why me? We can't answer that. It does mean, doesn't it, the whole history of this world, though, was, is that where we can see God allowed a fall and, and, and then brought Christ to redeem us, to glorify his mercy and his grace and his love to the undeserving. And, and, and he planned it all. God was not sitting around idly before he created. He was planning and purposing everything, including your and my salvation. So just a couple of applications, really, as time moves on. The first is this, isn't it? God is sovereign, and, and we use that term, and, and we it's right. Uh, but we have to understand, it's not just God is omnipotent, that is, he can do all he wants. He is actually actively ruling in this world. In the beginning, God was there before it. He created the heavens and the earth and immediately he created, we see him saying, let there be light. Gather the waters together. Do this, do that, do the other. And, and all these vast things and everything, make creatures, make vegetation, make man. God has planned it all before and he just says, let there be and there is. And that means we can look at this world and happily we can say that there are what we what people call laws of nature, but that's really God's laws in nature is the better term, isn't it? Naturally, things happen. You can predict the sunrise. You can't. Sometimes it's behind the clouds, but it's, it's there. The earth is turned. You can predict the eclipses. You can predict all these sort of things. God is sovereign and, and he's made it run like this in an ordered way so that we can have some certainty about the things we need to be certain about. But also because God is sovereign, he can intervene. And he does intervene. We see miracles, we see the greatest miracles, the incarnation of the Son of God, the resurrection of the Son of God. We see a, a providence, we're going to sing of that in a minute, and providence uh, is used in a narrow sense of just God providing 
but it's used in a wider sense of, of, of God ruling over all things and making sure everything is provided. The ongoing things. The, the ongoing existence of the universe. And again you see, that what does this bring us to? What should it bring us to? It should bring us to humble worship, how small we are. But thankful worship, Lord, we can, and said this already, haven't we, rely upon you. You have proved yourself reliable. We are not living in some bizarre and horrible universe where you do not know if today is going to be 12 hours long or three weeks long. And you do not know if the water will start running uphill or if you drop something off the top of a building, it will whether it will sink, go to the ground or float upwards. You know, these are nightmare scenarios, aren't they? From the outer realms of science fiction. It's not like that. He's given us everything. And he planned it from the beginning. And just one more thing that we have to remember. Therefore, this is God's creation. Therefore, he is the lawgiver. By right... He is the one who can tell us how to live because he'd always planned that we should be on this earth and how it is that we should live. And therefore he has the absolute right to say this is right and this is wrong. And if we disobey God as we do, we oppose the purpose of the universe. We oppose the purpose of the creator. God is the ever-blessed God. God is the complete sovereign who needs nothing else. God is the God who is eternal, transcendent. This triune God, is this is who he is. And we are called to worship him. And we are called to trust him. And we have evidence, don't we, to trust him. The Bible is saying to us, you see all that happens? It's all in my hands. It's all pre-planned. Nothing will take me by surprise. My promises will be fulfilled. In you, for you. And we can take heart in that, can't we? In, these unser- in this uncertain world and where so many would try to, to teach there is no purpose, there is no meaning. Every man, woman for himself, herself. And the more we meditate upon the greatness of God as the scripture reveals it, and I've only touched the surface, the more we are led to deeper love, deeper worship, deeper trust, that the God who made all this will do for us all things well for time and for eternity.